Welcome to Facts Roundtable, a podcast dedicated to navigating life with food allergies across the lifespan. Presented in a welcoming format with interviews and open discussions, each episode will explore a specific topic, leaving you with the facts to know or use. Information presented via this podcast is educational and not intended to provide individual medical advice. Please consult with your personal board-certified allergist or healthcare providers for advice specific to your situation. Hi, everyone. I'm Caroline Mawasasi, and I am your host for the Fact Roundtable podcast. I am a food allergy parent, advocate, and the founder of the Grateful Foodie blog, and I am Fact's Vice President of Community Relations. Before we start, we want to highlight FACT's platinum sponsor, the National Peanut Board, and thank them for their years of continued support and partnership. It's that time to gear up for back to school with food allergies and dust off those accommodation communication skills. But what if you're feeling a little rusty? So don't worry, we're sitting down with FACT's General Counsel and Director of Civil Rights Advocacy, Amelia Smith to help you prioritize important steps to take to create the path for a safe and healthy school year. Welcome, Amelia. It is always a joy to host you on the show as FACTS General Counsel and VP of Civil Rights Advocacy. And as well as a parent of a child with food allergies, we truly appreciate your insight and guidance because you are able to look at things from so many different angles. So welcome. Thanks, Caroline. I'm glad to be here as always. Let's start with the basics to make sure we're all on the same page. What are food allergy accommodations and who exactly is eligible to receive them? Educational accommodations are changes to the delivery or method of instruction, equipment, or as is often the case with food allergies, the educational environment. These accommodations are designed to ensure qualified, disabled students equitable or equal access to a free and appropriate public education. In order to be determined a qualified, disabled student, the student must fall into one of three categories. And the category we focus most often on is a student who has a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activity. Major life activities are defined under the current law, which is the Americans with Disabilities Act Amendment Act of 2008. And these can include caring for oneself, performing manual tasks, walking, seeing, hearing, eating, speaking, breathing, learning, working, sleeping, standing, lifting, bending, reading, concentrating, thinking, and communicating. I always sound like someone who reads those little disclaimers of all the side effects for pharma products when I go through that list. But what's so crazy is that list is very extensive. But in addition to that extensive list, Congress also said that major bodily functions are included, such as the immune system, normal cell growth, digestive, bowel, bladder, neurological, brain, respiratory, circulatory, endocrine, and reproductive functions are major life activities. And if that's not enough, if my boring, long, just dry listing of all of these things. Congress said, but this list isn't comprehensive. So there are other things that could be considered a major life activity that are not included in this list. So we have a lot of things to look at, but for the purposes of food allergies, students are at risk, if they have food allergies, for anaphylaxis, which is a major life 
life-threatening condition that can significantly impact the major life activity of breathing. Food allergies may also significantly limit other major life activities, such as eating, and it impairs or impacts major bodily functions. We know that allergic reactions are an immune reaction, so it affects the immune system, the digestive system. It can affect the bowel system, the re- respiratory system, the circulatory system. You know, eating, breathing, learning, all of these can be wrapped into food allergies as major life activities that are significantly impacted or limited by food allergies. So that is how a student with food allergies would qualify for accommodations in school. Wow, Amelia, that was a mouthful, right? All those items. But I'm so glad you're listing them. And I'm so glad we're having this conversation because I think people sometimes limit themselves and don't realize what's available to them and what support they can receive because they think they don't qualify. Well, and one another thing that I see in our community a lot or here in our community is we don't like the word disabled or my child's not disabled. I'm not going to seek these accommodations because I don't want him labeled as disabled. And the fact of the matter is your child's disabled, whether you have them labeled that way or not, it is a legal definition. It's not something you just decide it is there. It's defined. And whether your child receives accommodations or not, they are legally disabled. If they have this, this condition that limits significantly limits these major life activities. I really hate and I feel like it does our community a disservice to say I don't want my child labeled as disabled because it's not we're not talking a colloquialism here. We're talking about a legal definition. Your perspective certainly helped me personally with my family because my children resisted too. They felt that they were taking away from like someone in a wheelchair or someone who has a physical handicap. And so when I explained to them what I learned from you, they went, oh, okay. Because then they also realized that if they weren't going to their schools, colleges, and explaining this, then they were doing a disservice to their peers with food allergies and other invisible type, you know, conditions. So really appreciate you taking a moment to give us that perspective. I think that's really important for everyone to hear. Well, and I'm glad you brought up other um, invisible disabilities, as they're called, because I don't think that feeling is, is just limited to the food allergy community. I feel like, you know, the invisible disability community as a whole often has a hard time wrapping their head around that le- the fact that disability is a legal definition. So, Excellent points. Thank you so much. If a family has not established their accommodations yet, or they didn't reestablish them this last spring for the upcoming school year, what do you suggest they should be doing right now in July, August? Well, simply put, Caroline, if you haven't already done it, it's time to do it time to get on the ball. Um, If you haven't established accommodations at all, of course, the first place you would want to look is your school district's website or contact your central office to try to find out who your 504 coordinator is. Because of course, with food allergies, as we've discussed numerous times before, you typically are going to want a 504 plan and not an IEP. Your child typically does not qualify for an IEP if the disability does not affect their ability to learn. A 504 plan has nothing to do with the actual ability to learn necessarily. It has to do with access to the educational programs and activities, um, you know, also including those extracurricular activities and sometimes PTA, PTO events. So 
the 504 encompasses a lot, but it's all about that access. So if you don't have a 504 plan, if you have not started to establish one yet, as I said, it's time to reach out, trying to figure out who your 504 coordinator is and get on the ball. The first thing you would want to do is send a letter um, asking for an evaluation to determine that your child is eligible for a 504. And then, of course, after that, you would have your 504 meeting to establish those accommodations. If you have not, if you already have a 504, if you've had a 504 in the past and you haven't worked on updating it for the year, it is time to reach out as well. I would go ahead and email my 504 coordinator and say, hey, you know, if we don't have a meeting scheduled, but we need one to get our plan updated before school starts this year. If you have a meeting scheduled to establish accommodations or to you know, reestablish your accommodations to renew your plan, now is the time to be preparing a list of things you want to discuss, possible accommodations that you want in your plan or want to add, want to change your thoughts behind it areas where you may have concerns, but you don't really know how you want to address it. Now's the time to really start brainstorming, putting these thoughts together. And on the FAGS website, we have a list of sample accommodations. And by no means is my list the end-all be-all list of accommodations. You know, there, there are plenty of things on there that should be added to my list, and we're working on updating that. But um, it's a good starting place, and it's a good place to help you think about areas where you may need accommodations. Also, there are some things on there that may look duplicative. They may seem to be repeats, but they're not. These accommodations on my list, there may be five or six about riding the bus. I don't have it in front of me, so I don't really know. And so you think they're all the same, but they're not because you need to take into consideration your child's maturity level, your child's age, your response, you know, how responsible they are, individual personality traits of your child. An individual is the key there. You know, we know these accommodation plans are supposed to be individualized to the child's specific individual need. So it's very important to focus on that and to explain these needs or be able to explain these needs when the conversation comes up in a 504 meeting. And also just kind of adding on to that, too, I think it's really important to, like you said, plan ahead, brainstorm. Because I can sit down and write up a list, and then the next day I'm like, oh, I forgot to add this. And I just love the idea, obviously I'm biased, but I love the idea that we have some resources on the FACT website where people can start to get a jumping off point just to, to know, right, where to start. And then you can start weeding through and, like you said, make it very unique. But it is really important for people to take that time and just brainstorm, step away, come back, look at their child. This this is all very sage, wonderful advice. Well, thank you. And I love the fact that you brought up forgetting because that was something I had forgot to mention that I thought about when I was preparing for this. Even if you had a meeting in the spring, even if you have your 504 plan for the upcoming school year in place, you may have forgotten something. You may have thought of something in the interim that isn't included or that needs to be addressed. You can always reach back out and say, hey, I forgot something. Can we reconvene the meeting? Can we have a Zoom call with the team? That is constantly that constitutes a meeting under the law, typically in most states. That's one good thing, I guess, that came out of COVID. I know we've all kind of had Zoom fatigue, but we can have these meetings by Zoom. Emails can be considered meetings if you put everything in writing back and forth and everyone, the full team is included. So there are plenty of ways to have these meetings and 
you can call a meeting at any time, which is important to keep in mind as well. So if you've forgotten something, it's not the end of the world, but you need to get on it and discuss it before your child starts school, if possible. Excellent suggestion. And on that note of suggestions, what are your top must-do accommodation tips? Oh, wow. (laughs) What a question. I guess the most questions I get, the most calls, the most um, requests for support from families I receive has to do with schools denying an accommodation or um, saying they're not reasonable. Well, first and foremost, it's important to remember that this standard is not a free and reasonable public education. It is a free and appropriate public education. So you shouldn't be thinking about K through 12 accommodations as reasonable or not. That's not the standard. The standard is appropriate. So if you have requested an accommodation that you feel is appropriate in K through 12, and again, we're talking about K through 12 here, um, reasonable is the standard for post-secondary education. So reasonable is the standard in college or in employment, but it is not the standard in K through 12. So that is a really important distinction to make because, again, you know, schools say that's not reasonable or a parent asks me, you know, are these requests reasonable? Reasonable is not the standard. It's appropriate. So if you've made a request for an accommodation that you think is appropriate for your child and the school denies it, come back to the school or respond to the school by explaining the why. Explain why you want that accommodation, why your child needs that accommodation. And then say, you know, this is this is the result that I came to and considering the the why, you know, this is the accommodation that would meet that. But if you can come up with something else that still meets this why, this need, then I'd be happy to consider it. And let the school try to come to you with a suggestion. And fairly often, if you have explained the why well and explained the accommodation based on the why, the accommodation that you're requesting, the school can't come up with another one. And if they do, it's probably appropriate enough to at least try So it's important to go into it with an open mind. That would be another big tip. Enter this meeting with an open mind. Do not go into your meeting expecting a fight. This is supposed to be a collaborative process. We are all supposed to be there for the good of our student or our child and their best interest. And that would be another tip that I feel works often in these meetings is to keep the focus on your child, your student can be done by bringing just a picture of your child and placing it in the center of the table. You know, those eight by 10 school pictures that we all have laying around. That's a good thing to put out there and say, this is my child. If you get some resistance or you feel like you really need to make an impact, you can take pictures of your child. If you have any from a reaction and say, this is what we're trying to avoid. Or you can tell stories of your child's reaction, describe what happened and how your child felt. And the aftermath is a good thing to discuss as well, because we all know that there are impacts of reactions. Every reaction is going to make some kind of impact on your family or the people who experience it and the child especially. So it's important to discuss that as well, to point out the fact that if your child has a reaction at school, it probably will be traumatic for the other students and the teacher or whoever is with your child at the time of the reaction and not just your child. So it's also important to point that out. You know, one of the areas we see a lot of pushback on or did 
pre-COVID, probably another good thing out that came out of COVID, but we're starting to see resistance again to hand washing. So in a case where it's a accommodation that they're saying, okay, take hand washing, for example, we can't do it. We don't have the time. It takes up too much instructional time to get 30 kindergartners to all wash their hands four or five different times a day. That would be a case where, okay, we say, okay, well, maybe we don't have to wash with soap and water. Maybe we can use hand wipes that have been shown to remove allergen protein. That would be a a reasonable alternative. But it's also important to point out that hand washing helps keep the entire school healthy. It doesn't just benefit the allergic student. Also important to point out the benefit to the greater good or the entire school environment, all of the individuals in the school. That may be another way to encourage the adoption of your accommodation. Amelia, in past podcasts, you have mentioned after having all these great discussions, put everything in writing. Can you touch on that again? Certainly, Caroline. If it wasn't discussed during the meeting, if it wasn't said during the meeting and it's not in writing, you can pretty much expect someone to argue that it didn't happen. You know, this goes for those after class conversations or conversations had outside of the meeting environment. You and a teacher may be discussing, you know, this really isn't working, so let's do it this way. And these conversations are fine. And we know, at least if you're like me and you kind of talk yourself in circles, as you can tell, um, these conversations oftentimes have great outcomes and they are appropriate changes to a 504 that are discussed. And if that's the case, if that's the way you work things out better, if you're like me and kind of circumloquacious in your conversations, you know, in following up this conversation with an email, you can not only state these are the changes that we agreed to, but you can explain the why there. If you are comfortable with your teacher and know that she's probably going to follow through with it, this may be appropriate for the time being, but you have it in writing. If it is a contested area or somewhere that you are not sure that things are are being done the way they should, copy the 504 coordinator or the principal. You know, that's the great thing about emails when you put things in writing is you can send it to multiple people. So, you know, that's something I always suggest when I talk about the the evaluation letters or the eligibility letters, this request for an evaluation. Send it to the person that you found out was the 504 coordinator, but also send it to the principal of the school. Send it to the school nurse if you know who that is. You know, send it to your child's teacher if you already know who your teacher is for the year. You can send it to multiple people. And you can also, with most email programs, request a read receipt so that you know that they've opened it and read it. If you are sending a letter, I often, you know, as you request a read receipt with an email, I often suggest that you send letters via certified mail with return receipt requested so that you get that little card that proves that it was delivered and received. And this is important to have these proofs of dates, especially in the eligibility process, because schools typically have to evaluate within a certain period of time. Now, when we're talking about 504s, that varies because, of course, there is no quote-unquote 504 law like there is for IEPs. For the IEPs, we have the IDEA, which specifies that things must be done within 60 days. But even in that case, 
there's different ways to count that. So it's it's going to vary by your state how long they have to to do this eligibility review, but you at least know your starting point if you have a read receipt or return receipt on these written communications. And also just adding a little quick side note to it, that really helps me as the parent because sometimes I forget what we agreed upon. And so it's really nice for me to go back and just double check because God knows senility reigns early. Great point, Caroline. (laughs) Well, Amelia, believe it or not, our time is coming to an end here. So is there anything else that you want to make sure our listeners hear from you today? Well, as always, please remember that FACT offers free one-on-one support for families for civil rights advocacy questions. So if you have an accommodation question or you're having problems with the school, please feel free to reach out and request some one-on-one support. Best way to do that is to email me at amelia.smith at foodallergyawareness.org. In your email, you know, you can include a a brief synopsis of what's going on or what your questions are, and then we'll get together and schedule a time for a call. One thing I will say that I think might help families in going into this, a lot of people say, you're an attorney, so why aren't you automatically recommending that we go to the OCR or file a complaint if things aren't going well? Or, you know, I expect you to say that I demand this accommodation and if the school won't give it to me, then we're going to get fight. But we have to remember that we're going to be dealing with this school district. If your child's entering kindergarten, you've got 13 years with these people. So it's important to remember that everyone, again, is there for your child's best interest. Educators don't go into education typically for the money. They're there at least in the beginning because they they want to help students. So it's important to keep that in mind as well. But a lot of what I do is help families brainstorm what's going on, you know, different accommodations that they might be able to consider, different approaches to take. I also can help put you in touch with local professionals in your area, whether that be an education advocate, because we know I know Caroline and I've discussed this before. Sometimes we need someone to go in there and hold our hands keep our emotions in check. We know that this can be in a very emotional process for some, for most families. I won't even say some, I know for most families, it is for me as a parent and I'm a professional in this area. So it's important to keep that in mind. Don't feel ashamed of the fact that you may need some outside support because we all do. I do. I get very heated. You've had to talk me off the ledge before, Caroline. So, you know, it it happens and it's not something to be ashamed of. It's not something to be embarrassed by. Please feel free to reach out. We'll brainstorm. Or we can put you in touch with someone locally. Um, The other thing to keep in mind is that, yes, I am an attorney and I'm facts attorney, but I'm only licensed to practice in the state of Mississippi, if you couldn't tell from my accent. So, um, I may not necessarily be able to give you legal advice. I can't do that unless you live in Mississippi, but I can talk to you as a parent of a child with food allergies who has specialized knowledge in this area. So it's always important to keep that in mind so that I don't get in trouble and I can continue to do this for other families. But, you know, a lot of what you may be having trouble with can often be talked out 
it can often be worked out. It can often be looked at from a different angle. And so I'd like for you to keep that in mind as well. If you're going through this process is just to be open. And yes, are there needs that our students have that absolutely need to be accommodated? Yes. But how we get there may not always follow the same path from year to year. And it may not look like what we expected it to. Perfect words to end an amazing conversation by. This has been a real powerful time together. Thank you for sharing such actionable items and explaining them in very relatable ways. Amelia, thank you for your time. I can't wait for the next podcast with you. You are just tremendous, such an asset to fact. I know, again, biased people. I'm very biased, but I adore this woman and the work and what she does for our community. So thank you, Amelia. Oh, thank you, Caroline. That means so much. Before we say goodbye today, we just want to highlight one more time FACT's platinum sponsor, the National Peanut Board, and we would like to thank them for their years of continued support and partnership. Thank you for listening to FACT's Roundtable Podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes coming soon. Please subscribe, leave a review, and listen to our podcast on Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Have a great day and always be kind to one another.